Hey, now say now, you're tuned in to the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I am your host, Devon Pouncey. Today, we have a very special guest, somebody who's very, very familiar with this podcast and somebody we are also familiar with. Um, he's a professor of politics at my alma mater, the Pacific University here in the state of Oregon. And yes, I had the fortune to be a student in two courses that he taught, um, as he is one of the leading voices and scribes when it comes to the politics of the Olympic Games. But here is the part that we also have to acknowledge is he is one of the greatest soccer players to ever come out of the United States of America as he once played for the U.S. soccer team. And Jules, sometimes <laughs> sometimes I got to remind these people, man, Jules was a dynamite athlete in his day. <laughs> <laughs> I was okay. I don't know about the best, but I appreciate you that. Shout me out like that. No, no problem. No problem. I just, even sometimes, you know, obviously, you know, I follow all the work that you do. You and I are really close. And by the way, that's Jules Boykoff, whose voice you heard there, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, as he's joining us here on the podcast. But as I was saying, obviously, you know, we, we do a lot of, um, you know, kind of back and forth when it comes to sharing and consuming, consuming each other's work. And obviously your work is laid out so beautifully that sometimes I get caught up in Jules, the journalist, Jules, the professor. And I don't give you enough credit for being Jules Boykoff, the ex-professional soccer player and a U.S. national team member. And I think we got to make sure we keep that respect on your name as we continue to move forward. Ha. <laughs> huh. Okay. Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. For sure. But, but a couple weeks ago, Jules, I, I reached out to you. I saw you at Street Roots while you were down volunteering. And I think this was about around the time when um, we had locked in the date for me to interview Shireen Ahmed, which was a Great interview for those who haven't listened to it. It was a couple episodes back. Um, but as I was talking to you, I'm like, you know, Jules, I want to get you on the podcast here pretty soon. And I thought to myself, what better time to get Jules on the podcast in this very week that we're in right now? Because this Friday would be the opening ceremonies for the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games, had it not been postponed due to the pandemic. And we're still definitely going to talk about the Olympic Games. We're going to talk about your new book um, because that 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 definitely uh, needs to get some recognition here on the podcast. But just in a short two weeks since you and I have had that discussion and we plan to meet here right now as we're doing, the President of the United States has, has sent his federal troops here to the city of Portland, Oregon to just completely wreck shit and we have you know protests going on out here i think we're near 60 days now correct 60 consecutive days coming right up on it yeah coming right up on 60 consecutive days of protesting here in the city of portland um since the george floyd killings but this is the first city that trump unleashed his federal troops to come and, and try to see some things which isn't quite working here in the city of portland but jules you've been out there quite frequently during these times. And I know you've certainly had some experiences out there on the front line, especially in these past couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, I just love to hear your perspective about what's going on in the streets of Portland right now as we're getting national and even international recognition um, for the protesting and obviously this back and forth between civilians and uh, federal troops and even the local police as well. Yes. Well, first of all, I just want to say thanks so much for having me back on the show, Devon. And I have enormous admiration for the work that you're doing in all these multiple spheres, you know, sports, politics. I'm a big listener to the podcast. And then, of course, you're doing all this terrific work down at Street Roots and also uh, pushing the, our elected officials to do the right thing in city government. So uh, and beyond in the metro area. So I just want to just say I, I have enormous admiration for all you're doing on all these different fronts. And so, yeah, I've been going to these protests. Um, I would say, you know, we're coming up on 60 days. Like you said, I've probably gone out more than half of the different nights. And I've attended a wide range of different types of protests for a little while there. There were some of these larger mobilizations that were rallies and marches. I attended some of those. I also have attended some of the events down at the Justice Center or what some people prefer to call the Injustice Center in downtown Portland, which is right next to the federal courthouse. And those tend to be festive on the early side of the night and then get a little spikier toward the later end. But one thing is for sure, if you've been following the news, you probably have been hearing that 
there's been a lot of violence on the streets of Portland. I just want to make one thing clear from the get-go, which is yeah. that a very vast majority of the violence that we've seen in Portland has come from Portland police and federal police. A vast, vast majority. I think that, that just needs to be said at the outset. The protests that I've attended have been led primarily by young black leaders in the city. Um, by There's been indigenous leadership as well. There's been a lot of acknowledgement of stolen land and, and many people uh, doing the official land acknowledgements ahead of events. So it's about black lives mattering but it's also about bringing everyone together to focus on that, including indigenous populations. We've seen a diversity of tactics across the board, whether it's sort of more family-friendly marches, uh, whether it's or whether it's maybe seizing a highway. One time I was at an event that we basically took over Highway 84, the Banfield yeah. Expressway, and there was no traffic going in either direction and really sending a message about the seriousness of the protests. And there's also been recently a group of moms against police brutality who have gathered down at the Salmon Springs Fountain on the waterfront and walked up to the Justice Center in dramatic fashion and joined uh, the crowds that are up there. And these moms, they wear yellow and they link arms and they stand at the front lines and they block right in front of the police and the feds, you know, they block with their bodies. And they were joined last night by a group of dads in orange, uh, orange shirts. So you got wow. the yellow, you got the orange. It's almost like they have uniforms. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and so it was a huge crowd last night when you throw the dads in. And there's just incredible momentum. Uh, last night, so Monday night, there was just a, a huge, huge amount of people on the streets of Portland in the thousands Wow. Uh, out in front of the Justice Center and in front of the federal courthouse. And so it has been absolutely remarkable what these protests have been able to achieve in these few short days. And I'll, I'll leave you with this, that for now, that, you know, for starters, it affected the way that city council in Portland decided its budget. And it shifted around $15 million out of the police budget. So we hear a lot from protesters about defunding the police well, it's actually happened here in Portland. Not as much as activists were demanding. They were talking more about taking 50 million out of the police budget, mm -hmm. but they got 15 million out, including 4.8 4 that'll go over to the Portland Street Response, which I know that you've been running and working really hard on. So um, there's definitely that that I think is important. Second, though, the protests seem to be working because there's just been a shift in opinion. In the Washington Post ABC poll that just came out found that 69% of people polled in the United States say that black people and other people of color are not treated equal to whites in the legal system. Yeah. That is a record high. It's wow. up 15 points from 2014. So that's a huge spike in public opinion. And it's the first time that a majority of whites have said that black people and people of color are treated unfairly in the system. So this is momentum and we're seeing it right in front of our eyes. And maybe we can get a little bit into the police response and kind of yeah. peel back what's been Portland police and what's been the feds. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what I want to do here because I know you've been out there, you've had um, your interactions before we got on this podcast, you alerted me that you have actually uh, been tear gassed out there and you've been hit with a few rubber bullets as well. Uh, pepper balls. Yeah. Pe pepper balls. Okay. Yeah. You've been hit with some pepper balls. You've been tear gassed. So you, you've been on, you know, uh, the opposite end of, um, police out there just kind of wrecking the city and, and really uh, treating folks brutally, treating citizens beautiful, uh, brutally here in the city of Portland. Um, but can you kind of speak more to that? Speak more to sort of those interactions that you have had. Um, obviously, we're a leading city when it comes to federal policing coming out here and, and acting in the way that they are. And there are still other cities in America that are protesting as well that could really and truthfully um, be under this same treatment sooner than later. So could you kind of just speak to what's going on uh, out here in the city of Portland from your experience? Yeah, that's a great point that Portland has become not only a tinderbox, um, but also a testing ground for yeah. President Trump and, and the terror tactics. I mean, that's what we're talking about, sending federal troops in. Um, and let, let's talk about those terror tactics. Um, I'm sure many of your listeners have seen the videos of 
federal police dressed in uh, camouflage popping out of unmarked rented gray vans and snatching people off the streets. And we used to call these snatch squads back in the day. And they're just snatching people and pulling them into these trucks and then hauling them away for, for questioning. And oftentimes they're not even creating records of arrests, which will make it very difficult later to use the Freedom of Information Act to figure out what actually was happening there. So you have the use of snatch squads. You've got the abundant use of tear gas. And I just want to pause for a second to say tear gas is actually outlawed by international treaty in international warfare. So the 1993 Chemical Weapons Convention bans the use of tear gas in international war. The United States is a signatory to it. The Senate ratified it. It went into effect in 1997. But There's a little carve out in that treaty that allows police, domestic police, to use tear gas in extreme situations. Uh. I don't know why they have that in there, but that's why that little caveat, that little carve out for domestic police allows it to be legal. It's weird because like, why would you? I didn't know that. Yeah. So why would you not allow it in international warfare, but for some strange reason, allow it here? But even in Portland, it's supposed to be a last resort. It's supposed to be when there's a riot happening, however they define that, or when police feel like there is an endangerment of life at that moment. Well, let me tell you, I've been at numerous protests where it's very relaxed, um, and yet they're still using the tear gas. It's difficult to see how they can justify it. There's been a lot of reporters and Portland for the Oregonian, the Mercury, uh, and I've seen a little bit in Street Roots too, covering how like that. Look, there, there's not been endangerment of life, and they're liberally using tear gas. They've also been using rubber bullets, like you've talked about. You know, the pepper balls as well. They sting when they hit you. They're often called less lethal. Um, But let's be clear, they can be lethal. There was an important study, an academic study that came out recently that analyzed the use of so-called less lethal weapons and munitions. And it found that 3% of people that are hit with these so-called less lethal munitions die. 3% die. Yeah. 15% who are hit with them walk away with permanent disabilities. So it's a bit of a misnomer for starters to call them less lethal. And second, just because they're rubber bullets doesn't mean they don't cause serious damage. And third, we've seen across the country, many people getting hit in the eyes with these things. And, you know, just the other night I was saying, you know, I got hit by the the pepper ball, which was, you know, the least of my concerns. I got hit in the leg, but these things are flying everywhere. A friend of mine, she got hit in her neck. I mean, if that just goes a few inches higher, she's blind basically in one eye. And you can't control these things. You're supposed to be shooting them down, but they ricochet off things. I mean, it is incredibly dangerous and brutal uh, what the response has been from both the feds, the federal officers, as well as the Portland Police Bureau. And I think one one thing that that I find interesting um, is that, you know, ensuring public safety is actually reserved to the states, according to the 10th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And so there's a carve out for federal officials who can protect federal property without state permission. And that's what we're seeing right now. When Trump sends in these federal officers, it's supposedly to protect federal property like the courthouse. But we've seen these federal officers going way away from the federal property they're supposedly there to protect, to do these snatches like we were talking about of, of protesters and many other things, tear gassing and, and you name it. And in fact, uh, Trump has let it out of the bag. He keeps saying that they're there, they're going there to do the work of state police. And, and this basically shows that this idea of protecting federal property is pretty much just a pretext for coming in and doing extreme policing as a sort of demonstration effect for protesters designed to intimidate them. But it's been intense. Yeah. Portland's not backing down. I mean, I'd say the No, it's not. (laughs) It's really not. Yvonne, the numbers are only getting bigger in the last week. And so, and I think there's a certain pride among activists, like we're standing up to the powers that be to say enough's enough. And, And one other thing, you know, police have been arguing that this isn't about uh, any, about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Black Lives Matter anymore. I don't actually understand how they can say that. They claim it's about you know vandalism and violence, which all too often they conflate, which is to say falsely equate as if they're the same thing. Um, but if you go to these protests, 
Black Lives Mattering is foregrounded and forefronted every single night. That is yeah. why people, that's what they're chanting about. That's what they're talking about. All the demands are about that. And so I don't have any time really for those who say that, it's all about violence or vandalism. One last thing. I know I keep Yeah, going no, no, here. no, no. We're here for it. I, trust <laughs> me. I, I, I alerted some folks on my Instagram story that we were going to have a really deep and intense talk about protesting here because, like I said, I, I'm being reached out to tons of people, obviously me being from California and me just, you know, having a wide network and knowing a lot of people. Um, so many people are reaching out to me asking, am I, am I okay? Because they're hearing mm -hmm. about what's going on here in the city of Portland that isn't happening anywhere else, at least not yet. So please, please, the floor is yours. Okay. Well, I've been getting those same kind of calls and texts. And <laughs> are you alive still? In Portland? Yeah. <laughs> Under siege. And, and that takes me to the point I wanted to make, which is the acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, a guy called Chad Wolf. Go is, home, Chad. Yeah, go home, Chad. I've been the hashtags. Yeah. Right. From elected <laughs> officials, including Commissioner Joanne Hardesty and our, yeah. our you know, federal officials as well. Um, but when, when Chad got here, they, they issued, the Department of Homeland Security issued a list of the things that, quote, violent anarchists, end quote, had been doing. And it was just a list of vandalism for the most part. It was like painting park benches, writing graffiti on walls. The one that really cracked me up was they said throwing animal seed at officers, you know, as if like you could get injured, first of all, by getting hit with animal seed. And second, what was happening actually on the ground, at least at one event that I was at, was that um, there were protesters who had buckets full of pig feed and they were like just throwing them underhand to the cops saying, here you go, you know, oink, oink, and like throwing them pig feed. Oh, that was on the list as like oh, wow. this violent anarchist act of oh, throwing, you know, underhand gosh. pig feed uh, toward toward these federal <laughs> officials. I mean, I think we have to, you know, think critically and read between the lines when we're yes, looking we do. at statements. And I think one thing that I, I've been, is on my mind a lot is that, this is obviously a transparent attempt for the Trump administration to try to hurl political red meat to its base. There's no question about that. And the U.S. senators from Oregon and our representatives have similarly used the, what's going on as a chance to slam Trump in public. Absolutely. And there might be some scoring of electoral points on the side, maybe toward November. Yeah. Where it gets interesting to me is when the mayor and how he's been dealing with it, you know, he's basically happy to blame Trump for all the woes because that erases the reality that Portland Public Police has been inflicting major violence on the population. So for Wheeler, it's pretty convenient that Trump is getting all this attention because it can yeah. deflect from his responsibilities as police commissioner. And like almost symbiotically, Trump, the same thing works for him. He loves yep, this. It does. End up look yep. like a tough guy, say he's coming in to fix all this thing. So it works for both Wheeler politically in a way. You can say it's Trump and then Trump can say it's me and I'm going to get political points from this. And together, what I'm scared of, and this is what I would ask your your listeners to keep an ear out for, together, I'm, I'm a little scared that this could be a recipe for inaction. So mm. Wheeler blames Trump. Finally, hopefully, you know, the federal officers will leave and Wheeler will be like, okay, you know, moving on to the next thing. What we really need is serious restructuring of the way police work in this country. What we really need is thinking about defunding the police in the ways the Portland street response has been doing. And so I guess I, I think this is something to keep an eye on that we can't let them just play off of each other to the detriment of real action that we need to change society for the better. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up about, you know, sort of the politicians and the roles that they're playing, because last week, you know, I did a press conference with Kaya San, your wife as well, um, Sophia Mazaraga. We had some folks from FIRE and some folks from Hardesty's office. And we did a press conference with Senator Ron Wyden, who's one of the U.S. senators here out of the state of Oregon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were invited to the conversation to speak about Portland Street response in, partic in particular. But as they sat us down at sort of this semi round table um, that that we were supposed to be had, which we did have, don't get me wrong. But at the table that they sat us at to have this conversation about Portland Street response, first, Senator Wyden 
had to address the press about the happenings here in Portland, Oregon, obviously the federal troops being out here in Portland and, and doing all the damage that they're doing. He condemned that. He obviously condemned Donald Trump as well. And so it was very interesting to see how he started with that before he actually pivoted into the conversation with all of us in regards to Portland street response. And he kind of used that, um, you know, as a starting point for him to transition into uh, an action item or a solution based item, as you mentioned. Um, but I, but I do want to talk about uh, Kent Ford really quick because Kent Ford, for those of you who don't know, is uh, one of the founders of the the Portland chapter of uh, oh gosh, why did I just go blank? Black Panther Party, the Portland chapter of the Black Panther Party. Um, Jules, you did a Q and A with Kent Ford that was uh, that circulated quite well in the nation. But you've also been out there on the streets with Kent Ford, and I want to hear what that experience in particular has been like um, for you to be able to go out here and fight this fight with the staple in this community here like Kent Ford. Obviously, we know the Black Panther Party is very popular, and you know going back to what you were saying about this has always been about black lives mattering. And this is still about the same fight that has been consistent for decades and decades and decades here in this country. Just speak to what that experience has been like for you being out there with Kent. I appreciate you raising that Devon. Kent Ford is a legend of Portland. I think it's just fair to call him a legend. He started the Black Panther Party in 1969 after he had been released from jail on trumped up riot charges. He fought those charges. He won. He actually got a settlement from the government. And he has been active in politics since the 1960s all the way through today. He is 77 years old today, Kent Ford is, and he's still hitting the streets. Uh, for a while there, Kent and I were going out every single night. Yeah. And uh, we're going to be going out tonight, actually. I, I talk to him every <laughs> morning. We have a yeah. phone conversation and we figure out what's going on during the day, talk our fair share of politics. And he has a lot of insights to afford in terms of what's going on here. One thing that Kent talks about a lot is he has no time for the idea of the good protester, bad protester, like the moms in their yellow shirts are the supposed good protesters. And then the people using black block tactics, all dressed in, in black with hoods and so on, are the so-called bad protesters. He's Ooh. got no time for that because he says, look, we were the Black Panther. We were the Black Panther Party, the so-called bad protesters back yeah. in the day for starters, and they were doing incredible work in the community from the Breakfast for Children program to the Fred Hampton People's Memorial Health Clinic to the Malcolm X Dental Clinic. Portland was the only city of all the Black Panther chapters that had multiple health clinics running full throttle. And so yet they were still called the bad protester. That's one reason why he talks about not really liking that either or binary. The other one is because he points out that were it not for anti-fascists in Charlottesville, we might no longer have the amazing Dr. Cornell West in this world. Mm. Because they saved him, according to Dr. Cornell West, when the white supremacist organizations were closing in at that horrible Charlottesville rally. Um, yeah, so, I very yeah, Kent, much so remember that. <laughs> yes, yes, sir. And so Kent always talks about that. He says, you know, we, we want Antifa, we want anti-fascists in the movement. We should all be working together. This is not a time to divide. And so I really urge your listeners to check out this interview that I did with Kent for The Nation magazine. If you just do a search for Kent Ford and the nation, you should be able to find it. And he just drops all sorts of gems, but he's an inspiration. I mean, 77 years old, still hitting the streets. And this is what he always says. We got to keep it in the streets. We got to keep things moving in the streets because that is going to put pressure for change out there. And so far he's been right for all the reasons that we're talking about. There's been some significant change in only 50, 60 days uh, that would have never happened were it not for what he calls the street heat that was creating all these uh, changes in the first place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely had to bring him up. I love Kent Ford, by the way, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've had the pleasure of being around Kent um, with you. I, I've had the pleasure of speaking with Kent on, on several occasions. So I definitely um, wanted to hear about uh, you know, what you and Kent have been out there doing and, and you being out there and working with Kent because uh, it's very necessary to acknowledge the leaders 
um, but also acknowledge the people that have been in this fight for a very, very long time, as a lot of us are acknowledging the youth right now, and rightfully so, but we've also got to acknowledge our legends uh, from the past. But now, we'll finally talk about the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Like I said, a couple of weeks ago, man, I, I truly just had it, you know, in my, in my mental that, you know, Jules would come on here. We'd talk about his new book. We'd talk about um, some of the pieces that you've had the fortune of writing here within the past four or five months or so, because it's been a lot of great work you're putting out there and yada, 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 Olympics this, Olympics that. And then Portland turned into a hotbed, you know, for the feds to come in here and, and like you said, kind of make it a playground for them to have their way with peaceful civilians and protesters. Um, but I want to start off with your book. And the reason why I want to start off with your book first and foremost is because, for one, I did have the pleasure of being able to read it. And I want to say that um, it, it was a very good and thorough book for folks to read. The book is titled No Olympians Inside the Fight Against Capital Capitalist Mega Sports in Los Angeles, Tokyo, and Beyond. And then I also wanted to acknowledge the book selfishly here because when you handed me over that book, you know, for me to have in my possession, obviously for me to read, I was pleasantly surprised in the acknowledgments as you mentioned me in the acknowledgments of this book. And I think that's the very first time I've ever seen my name in a published book before. So I was pleasantly surprised by that. So appreciate you so, so much for doing so. My pleasure. Well, first of all, you deserve that acknowledgement because the conversations that you and I have, whether it's down at Street Roots or elsewhere, has really helped me push my thinking in so many ways. And so I want to make sure to acknowledge that publicly. But yeah, I'm really excited about this book. Um, no Olympians chronicles the rise of two political forces. There's anti-Olympics activism globally and the Democratic Socialists of America in the United States. And it also charts the decline of host city interest in the Olympics. In other words, fewer and fewer cities are keen to stage the Olympic Games these days. And these two trajectories I'm talking about come together in Los Angeles, where you have this super savvy, smart group of activists that has emerged to challenge the Los Angeles Olympics, which are slated for the year 2028. Yeah. And the group is called No Olympics LA. They're the main protagonists of the book. I went to Los Angeles numerous, numerous times over the last uh, year or two. And I think I want to shout out my friend, Ben Carrington. I got to stay with him. He made it all possible. Let me crash in his room. Yeah. And when I was, when I was in Los Angeles, I, I got to work with, follow and interview all these activists from No Olympics LA. The group came out of the local chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America and more specifically out of the DSA LA's Housing and Homelessness Committee. So there's a real focus on housing and the issue of homelessness in the city, which is way out of control in Los Angeles, and how that fits in with the Olympics. And No Olympics LA is just flat out a tremendously talented and creative group of activists. You got a lot of people who work in Hollywood as actors or producers or writers. Others are journalists in the city. So you got some really strong writers and thinkers in that front. And still others are grassroots organizers across the city. They've put together this coalition of activist groups that includes the LA Tenants Union, the Sunrise Movement LA. So there's a, a, little, a lot of thinking about climate change as well. Mm -hmm. And the local chapter of Black Lives Matter as well. And so, you know, the bigger story that I try to get at in the book is how No Olympics LA is taking criticism of capitalism and how it plays out in the context of hosting the Olympic Games and trying to translate that into boots to pavement, on the ground activism. So kind of like using the Olympics as this trampoline for leftist activism. So that's kind of what the book is about in a nutshell. Absolutely, absolutely. And I want to kind of go back to the, the point that you mentioned about sort of the decline of, of host cities and host countries uh, being willing to have international competition uh, in their, you know, in their respective regions. Um, a lot of it is for the sake of allocating funds to end or ending major factors that create uh, economic inequality, um, which I would say in some ways is even fitting to the parallel of the idea of defunding the police. It is parallel to the idea of defunding the police. Obviously, you know, we have policing that 
has been an issue for quite some time here in the United States of America. Civilians have decided enough was enough. Cities and politicians are now deciding that enough is enough. And we're seeing some police uh, funding being defunded and allocated into other areas. Um, but what can you speak more about sort of the movement away um, from the Olympic, Olympic model for host cities and, you know, some of the impact that it truly can have on these cities? Sure. I think that is a, a really key point here. And there's a reason why fewer and fewer cities are, are keen anymore. And that's because that there are a number of problems that have emerged that people are becoming much more knowledgeable about. For starters, let's just start with the money. Um, there's just chronic overspending. I've called it Etch-a-Sketch economics, where during the bid phase, when a city's bidding on the Olympics, they say, oh, the Olympics are only going to cost $7.3 billion in the case of Tokyo. But then you shake up that Etch-a-Sketch. Oh, this might be too old of an illusion for you, Devon. I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> Etch-a-Sketch and then you write a new number. I, on I, I know what an Etch-a-Sketch is. I know yeah. where you shake it up and it erases. and <laughs> Right. Probably yeah, a museum yeah. now somewhere. But yeah, all right. So you shake it up and you put a whole new number at the point. And right. these days with, with Tokyo, they, a Japanese audit from the, the government itself found that no longer was it $7.3 billion, but it's $28 billion, and it's only going to rise another $6 billion probably because of the postponement, if not more. So there's that problem around overspending. There's also the issue of what scholars call white elephant stadiums. So the Olympics have all these specialized events, such as like these fancy whitewater canoeing kind of events where you have to build these specialized fancy courses. And in Brazil, they built one of these to meet the specifications of the Olympic Games. And guess what? Like everybody said ahead of time, there wasn't the strong canoeing culture to keep that thing alive and working. And it was closed within weeks after the Olympics uh, ending. And there were actually, at one point, I read a report in the Brazilian press that there were more alligators in this thing than humans using it anymore. And so if you don't let them fall into disrepair like that, well, then you got to pay millions of dollars to maintain them. So there's just a, a problem with that. Yeah. A third issue is what you alluded to, which is, you know, the militarization of cities when they host the Olympic Games. That's an interesting connection you were making between the policing of, of Portland and demonstrations and the Olympics. Because with the history of the games, there have actually been terrorist attacks, 1972 in Munich, 1996 in Atlanta. In 2014, there was a Chechen rebel named Doku Umarov who said that the Sochi Olympics in Russia was a legitimate terrorist target. And so what you see now in city after Olympic city is that local security officials and national security officials use the Olympics like their own private cash machine, getting all the money, weapons, special laws that they'd never be able to get during normal political times. And those things then stick around after the Olympics. They don't just like box them up and return them to sender. They stick around in the Olympic city and become part of everyday policing of typically marginalized and racialized populations. So there's a big problem there from critics of the games. Another issue is that it leads to displacement and gentrification. For the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, 1.5 million people were forcibly evicted to make way for those Summer Olympics. 1.5 million. Wow. You know, when I was, it's a big number. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost unfathomable. When you think yeah. it, like, it's like a really big city worth of people was just, you know, kicked out of their homes. And if they didn't like it, by the way, as a historical side note, if they didn't like it and they started to complain to the government, and ask some questions, they would be sent to a quote unquote re-education labor camp. So they would be like sent there for re-education, but it was, you know, really to sort of get them back in line, do some cheap labor for the government, and then maybe someday let them go. And so, but it's not just, you know, that's the extreme case, but even in Atlanta that hosted the Olympics, there was a lot of gentrification and people were kicked out of their homes. The homeless are treated terribly by the Olympics. The Atlanta Games basically bought thousands of one-way tickets for homeless folks and just sent them out of the ticket uh, out of the city because they didn't want them to be there when the global media arrived. Uh, You know, they wanted to quote unquote sanitize the city. So there's that going on as well. There's also greenwashing where you have big promises about how environmentally sustainable the Olympics are going to be but very little follow through. I'll give you an example from Rio. As you know, Devon, uh, I lived in Rio de Janeiro with my family yeah. in the lead up to those Olympics as a Fulbright research scholar. So I saw this for myself. I talked to people 
who were taken by the idea and the promise that was in the Olympic bid book from Rio that they were going to clean 80% of the water that was entering Guanabara Bay. This was a place where they were going to have different Olympic events. And it's just, it's disgusting. I mean, Kaya and I took a boat tour. It was funny. We were with all these tourists and they were all taking pictures of like the skyline. And Kaya and I were like taking pictures of the water and like, you know, a dead goat floating by or like all this plastic. And like there have been dead bodies that turn up in Guanabara Bay. So you can bet that locals were thrilled at the idea of actually cleaning it up. Sure. If if it takes the Olympics, yeah, okay, fine. Let's clean that thing up because it's nasty and we'd like to swim there. Well, that promise didn't was not followed through. I mean, as I say, they said it was going to be 80% filtrated. By the time the games rolled around, it was hovering around 25% of the water that was filtrated. So, oh, you know, my. that's greenwashing. And, and it's also, you know, these false promises. And the fact of the matter is that the International Olympic Committee is a big part of the problem. They helicopter into these events. They enjoy the five-star hotels. They enjoy the, you know, high value cheese plates and then they and and they also get paid you know yeah. on the, <laughs> yeah. maybe nine hundred dollars a day to sit there and watch you know the olympic events nine hundred dollars a day per diem that's on top of all the wow. free they get i mean yeah. they can make more money as an international olympic committee member like snoozing in the seventh row of the tennis competition than an athlete who gets like a gold medal can make from the whole competition you know yeah. so it's it's just really twisted. And I think more and more people are realizing that the International Olympic Committee is a highly corrupt organization. I mean, even there's serious allegations that Tokyo paid bribes to get those 2020 Olympics, as did Rio in for the 2016 Olympics, when they raided the apartment of this one guy, Carlos Nuzman, who was running the Olympics in Rio de Janeiro. They found that he had a Russian passport he had like thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars in multiple currencies. And they went into his bank vault in Switzerland and found 16 gold bars. So like there's just corruption sloshing through that system. And I think when, when you put all of that together, And you put together also the fact that there's a rising awareness about these issues, thanks to critical journalists, thanks to activists in each one of these cities, thanks to academics who are doing more and more work on this, and thanks to human rights workers. Yeah. Just less inclination to want to host the Olympics, and it becomes harder for the elites that push for these bids to get the support from everyday people in their cities. What are your thoughts on the idea of the Olympic Games just having one central location? Rather than, you know, obviously it hops from city to city um, uh, every four years when you speak in terms of the summer games. And then, yeah, every four years when you speak of the winter games as well, obviously summer and winter games, I think, are staggered out every couple of years. But um, what what are your thoughts about just kind of having one centralized location that the Olympics will be held at every year um, that there's an Olympic event? This would cut down on at least some of the building at least in theory. The question is who would get the Olympic games or who would be saddled with the Olympic games is maybe another way of putting it. There's been discussion of having Athens, the sort of cradle of the Olympics, get, get it again. But there's a real question as to whether the people of Athens would actually want it. The last time they hosted it in 2004, they went into extreme debt. They have all these white elephant stadiums all around town, you know, fountains that were made for the Olympics that now sit dormant, softball fields that have weeds growing in them. It's sort of Mm. become like the poster boy Olympics for these white elephant stadiums. So it's not even a real, you know, reality that Greece or Athens would even want the Olympics. There have been other people that have suggested having a small rotation of cities In part, they suggest that because they know that the International Olympic Committee likes to be high-flying and zipping around the planet in their jets and so on. And if you had maybe four or five cities that you rotated with each the Summer and the Winter Olympics, that would satiate their need to travel and they'd get their fix and all that. Mm -hmm. That, you know, has problems. Think about Atlanta. They built this special Olympic stadium for the 1996 Olympics And only 20 years later, they were rubbling the thing because it was seen as like a dinosaur of a stadium. You know how it is with the stadiums. Yeah. 
Absolutely. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's just as cheap to knock the whole thing down and build a fresh one. And not that it's cheap, but you know, that, that that's what's been happening. And so the question, I guess I raised that to say, all right, let's just say Atlanta was in that rotation and they hosted the games in 1996. By the time it came back around to them in 2016 or 2020, their Ooh. stadium would have been a fossil. Yeah. They had it knocked down anyway. So when you start right, to right, actually right, right. through what it would be like you know it's not going to be that acceptable to the ioc and it might not even cut down that much on the building around the olympics so wow yeah i didn't think about that <laughs> but I, I i could definitely see a place in a space where the ioc oh yeah this is 20 years old uh, time to renovate <laughs> yeah yeah i'm and it's not just the the building that needs to happen as well. I do want to stress that because, you know, all those problems that I just laid out for you there with the Olympics, they are not Tokyo problems, even though they're happening in Tokyo. They're Olympic problems that you import in one fashion or another into your city when your city is assigned to host the Olympic Games. And so it's really on the International Olympic Committee to try to figure out a path forward. And the unfortunate fact of the matter is they've kind of dug their heels in instead of thinking constructively in the face of criticism. I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit like you're driving your car and the check engine light comes on. You're like, oh, shit. Yeah. got to take it into the shop or, you know, if you know someone that can fix it even better. Um, But instead of doing that, basically the International Olympic Committee, when their check engine light went on for the Olympics, they just got out a piece of like duct tape and just stuck it over the thing and plugged their ears and just kept driving on the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Respond to criticism at all. You know, when you do that, eventually the car is going to break down. And I think that's what we're kind of seeing right now. It's like coronavirus has really pushed the issue and raised all these questions. And now a year-long delay for the Olympics has created more space to talk about corruption. Was there bribery to get the Tokyo Olympics? The French prosecutors looking at that as we speak. What are all the deals with the, the companies that got these contracts for the building? Why was it so expensive to make this thing? And what about the people that were forced out of their apartments? You know, when I was there last summer uh, with the great sports writer and journalist Dave Zyron, we met some folks who had been displaced by the 2020 Olympics, but they were also displaced by the 1964 Olympics, the same Ooh. people two different Olympics in Tokyo. And so there's just a tremendous human cost here with the games. And I think more and more people are becoming alert to them. And even if we decide to like host it in just one city or maybe a handful of cities, you're not going to necessarily fix up some of those problems. The other thing though, that you're facing is that with the winter Olympics, there's just fewer cities that can actually host them. Thanks to climate change. There's just a dwindling number of cities that have the snow Now, Beijing, which is slated to host the 2022 Winter Olympics, thereby making it the first city to host both the summer and the winter games, they're just going to make a bunch of fake snow and and hope for the best. If the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, is satisfied with that, I suppose they can lean on places like Beijing to do that in the future. But otherwise, it's going to be hard to even pull off Winter Olympics anymore. So there's that kind of on the radar as well. Wow, <laughs> that is a whole lot there, uh, but definitely what we needed to hear. Because, like I said, I, I'm just really interested in sort of the future of the Olympic Games and, and sort of how that's going to go. But now I want to get to the time and period and place that we are at right now in regards to the Olympic Games. And I and I'm definitely going to acknowledge the recent article that you co-wrote with Dave Zyron, as aforementioned, um, about athletes fighting the ban um, or, or fighting. A, fighting to ban the rule that protests aren't allowed in the Olympic Games. Um, But before that, I want to take it back to March, where you wrote a piece in the New York Times that was simply titled, Cancel the Olympics. Now, Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was you that created that title. I know sometimes editors play a role in in, in sort of the headlines and how things roll out, but this was still uh, your piece nonetheless. Um, but but someone who obviously works in the media, I understand how that goes when it comes to uh, editorial kind of, you know, coming out with these headlines and, you know, or how when it comes to things being edited, even when it comes to news broadcasts um, and things of that sort. So I totally get it. But nonetheless, um, you were very critical of the Olympics because they hadn't made a decision yet at that time to do anything with the 2020 games that were supposed to be starting this week here. Um, but obviously I give you credit for 
the Olympics finally making a decision because shortly after that, they did decide to postpone the games to 2021. Um, what are some of your thoughts on them postponing the games? Do you think that the games should have still been counts, uh, canceled altogether? Where do you stand at now um, that we won't be having the games this year, but there are still expectations for the Olympic games in 2021? Yeah. So with that piece that I wrote for the New York Times with the awesome title, which I cannot take credit for, <laughs> cancel the Olympics. Just a side note, you know, I have never written a single headline for anything I've written of the hundreds of pieces that I've written for these various different outlets. I just kind of leave that to the editors. So listener, if you don't like a headline, don't blame me at least. All right. <laughs> but yeah. with that piece, I tried to lay out the argument that uh, you know, postponing is going to be in a lot of ways worse. Um, for starters, it might just never even happen. And that can be super detrimental on the the mental states of athletes just in perpetual postponement mode. Um, it's not an easy feat logistically to get all the venues together one year later. They were going to rent out the Olympic Village as these sort of special apartment units, and they had to refashion all of that. There's also the matter of qualifications for the Olympics. It's just not easy to just go, okay, just we'll wait for one more year and we'll just do it again. There's just a lot that has to be fixed and changed. And if you don't want to take it from me, take it from the person that's been on the International Olympic Committee the longest, a guy with the unfortunate name of Dick Pound. Oh, he, God. Yeah, believe it or not. <laughs> I prefer to call him Richard. But yeah. anyway, uh, Mr. Pound said it very clearly. He said, you know, it'd probably be better to just cancel the Olympics than to postpone them. So this essay came out in the New York Times. And at the time, Thomas Bach, the president of the International Olympic Committee, he was saying, look, we are not even uttering the words cancellation or postponement in our, in our meetings. And I called him out on that saying, that's like reckless. I mean, you're supposed to be thinking about the contingencies here. Well, the, when this came out in the New York Times, then uh, I think what happened was, you know, maybe the IOC and this is uh, conjecture, by the way, but very like yeah. two days later, he's interviewed by the by the New York Times in this Q&A. And he says, oh, OK, yeah, we've been talking about postponement and cancellation. And when he admitted that, that's when you had this upsurge of athlete voice saying, yeah, we do think we should postpone it for global health, for our health, for the health of our Japanese hosts. We need to at least postpone the Olympics. And so then the momentum came once he kind of opened up the crack like that and admitted they were thinking about it for the athletes to swoop into that vacuum, really, and demonstrate some leadership. And what basically happened was Canada at one point, the official Olympic body for Canada said, we are going to boycott the Summer Olympics if they happen this summer. And um, they, they didn't say it in those terms, but they said we wouldn't send our athletes. It was a de facto boycott, in other words. And so Australia followed right in, in their wake, yeah. then Germany, Portugal. And once those dominoes started falling, the International Olympic Committee and the Tokyo organizers had no choice but to stave off the games to postpone them. And that's exactly what they did. That all happened in like a week around that <laughs> essay coming out. It was just an absolute whirlwind of activity. Yeah. Now, they're saying they're going to host it in 2021 in July and August. Um, but there are a lot of, of public health experts that are wondering how the heck that's going to happen in a safe fashion. Yeah. It doesn't matter if they have a vaccine or not it's still going to be difficult to pull off. So I guess that's what we're going to have to keep an eye on moving forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as I mentioned, I want to ask you about this piece that you co-wrote with Dave in regards to, um, you know, Olympic athletes being able to protest during these Olympic events. Um, and I sort of have two questions. Can you first speak about the ban that the Olympic has, the Olympics has imposed on protesting and what it is. And then from there, can you kind of speak about any momentum that you see in the particular times that we're in right now that could give us um, some hope that the ban will be lifted in the very near future? Yeah, great question. So in a way, the discussion starts with 1968 and the Mexico City Olympics, where famously John Carlos and Tommy Smith stood on the medal stand after meddling in the 200 meter dash. And they 
put their black glove fists into the sky as the national anthem played overhead. This has become an iconic moment of sports history. This has become an iconic moment of world history, quite frankly. And yet the International Olympic Committee did not take kindly to that. There was they acted quickly to put a rule in the Olympic Charter that explicitly banned demonstrations of a political nature anywhere around the Olympics or, quote, other areas. I mean, it's so capacious, the definition. They didn't want to have any more of that kind of athlete activism happening. And today, in the current Olympic Charter, that sits as Rule 50 that outlaws political and religious demonstrations in or around Olympic venues or other areas. And so there's been a lot of pressure from athletes. You've been covering it well, week in, week out, with Wake Up and Win, how there's just been more and more athletes speaking out about political issues. There's a a certain spirit of the times, if you will, zeitgeist that we're seeing right now. And so, of course, people are wondering, how does that fit with this rule in the Olympic Charter, which explicitly clamps down. And the International Olympic Committee made it clear in January when they issued uh, sort of extra guidelines meant to supplement the rule in the Olympic Charter, which by the way, they're not going to change at all, they said. We're keeping that rule. And secondly, we're going to tell you exactly what you can't do. And they wrote, you couldn't do gestures of a political nature like a hand gesture or kneeling, that was an obvious response to two U.S. athletes who only a few months prior at the Pan American Games in Lima, Peru, had engaged in political activity on the medal stand. You had Gwen Berry, the hammer thrower, who thrust her fist in the air while she was on the medal stand. And you had Ray Simboden, the fencer, who took a knee, kind of Kaepernick style, on the medal stand, both of them to raise awareness about racial inequality in the United States and economic inequality in the United States. And so the IOC made it clear that that will not be tolerated at the Olympics. A side note is that the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee gave both of those two athletes, Gwen Berry and Race and Bowden, one-year probations for their efforts and really designed to sort of squelch their political activism. Only a few months later, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee at least had the sense to realize that the situation had changed and they were trying to create spaces for their athletes to speak out, which made a lot of people ask, well, so are you gonna rescind those bans, or not bans, but really uh, probations on these athletes? In fact, Gwen Berry herself, she's an awesome follow on Twitter, and she was coming out hard on the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee saying, yeah, what about that? It seems a little strange now to all of a sudden you be saying we can have space for the kind of activity that I did that you punished me for, so what's the deal? So they did eventually apologize to her, um, but... So there's a lot of that kind of moving forward. And I think it's important to note as we approach the Olympics, if they even happen, by the way, that there are athletes who are keen to speak out. And there's athlete groups. There's one called Global Athlete, which I think is doing really important work right now, creating space for athletes to come together and speak out. There's a group of track athletes who've created a special group as well, similarly trying to get the... International Olympic Committee to modify that rule in the Olympic Charter that bans political dissent. A lot of people have pointed out that there's actually um, in the United Nations UN Declaration of Human Rights, there's a clause that says everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. And this right includes the freedom to hold opinions without interference. And it seems very clear that the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, is trying to interfere with these athletes and their ability under this Universal Declaration of Human Rights to speak out about these issues. So the, the new IOC guidelines are basically the opposite of these freedoms. And, you know, the last thing I'll say on this for now is just that, especially in this moment, it seems really tone deaf for the International Olympic Committee to clamp down on this kind of political dissent. Banning political protest is itself a blatant political act. And forbidding political dissent at the Olympic Games often means reinforcing white supremacy because most recent protests by Olympic athletes were either carried out uh, to raise awareness of racism and its ramifications, like Gwen Berry and, and uh, Ray Simboden did, like I was talking about, 
or is carried out by athletes of color who use the Olympics as a platform to talk back to powerful people in their home countries. And so if you say you can't do that, what you're basically quietly saying, the IOC is quietly saying is that we're going to just reinforce white supremacy and not give people chances to have high profile moments of speaking out against it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Jules, I want to transition here into a segment that you're very familiar with, and that is the take an L segment. Um, I reached out to you earlier just to let you know, hey, we're going to do this take an L segment here today. Um, so, so I'm glad that you were uh, willing and able to, to make it happen here with me. So for those of you that don't know what Taking L's is, um, it's basically a segment with this podcast being titled Wake Up and Win, where, you know, we discuss a particular topic or and or thing um, that may have taken a loss this week. And sometimes, obviously, you don't have to look at a loss as a negative thing. You could look at a loss as a lesson. But nonetheless, um, it is an L, and we have to acknowledge the L's Although, you know, we usually acknowledge how we wake up and how we win around here. Um, so, Jules, what do you got here today for the Take and L segment? I'm, oh, you want me to go first? I want you to go first. What do you okay. got for me? <laughs> All right. I want to, if I may, take the liberty of picking one person to take an L in each of the areas we've been talking about today. Is that okay? I'm here for it. Go for okay. it. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so let's start with what we were talking about first, which is the, the protests. And I want to give an L to Daryl Turner, who heads the Portland Police Union here. He has been borrowing lines from the Trumpian playbook, talking about how Portland is under siege and saying that the protests are all about violence and not black lives. That is just factually inaccurate. But I want to take on one thing he said in particular. He said, and this is a quote, if you care about black lives, the only thing you need to do is make this stop, meaning make the protests stop. And I'm just like, what? That what? makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> None at all. <laughs> protests are all about what's been happening with police brutality. And that point's just an irony that's embedded in the entire thing we've been talking about earlier in the show, which is to say the, all these protests are about police abuse. And what has been the response? more police abuse. Right. So, uh, Daryl Turner, I'm sorry. I just feel like that's an, an epic fail. And I'm going to ask you to take an L on that front. Who we on got the, next? I'm here for it. I'm here right, for it now. The, now we cook it. <laughs> yeah. The second one is Tomas Bach, who's the president of the International Olympic Committee. And he has just been pressing ahead to crush the rights of athletes to speak out and just put really put his hand, head in the sand on so many of these issues. And we were told when he took over the International Olympic Committee that he was going to be a breath of fresh air that was really going to reform the organization. But unfortunately, nothing of the sort has happened. In fact, he runs the place pretty much like a dictatorship. And just one example that I think really exemplifies what the way he has approached things is when there was initial talks of postponing the Olympics back when I wrote that essay for the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And a reporter asked him, you know, what, what do you think about this possibility of cancellation or postponement. And he said, well, you know, some people are saying that it's going to blow over. Look at Donald Trump. He said that it was going to be pretty much fixed, this coronavirus situation by mid-April, which is obviously ludicrous today as we talk here in July, but it was yeah. even ludicrous at the time on multiple levels because one, what the heck was Trump basing that on? And two, what the heck, Thomas Bach, are you listening to President Trump instead of the World Health Organization or the United Nations, which you have at your right and left elbow? So Thomas Bach, take an L on multiple fronts. I hope you'll change your mind when it comes to giving athletes space to air their very real and important grievances in this unprecedented political moment that we're living. That was great. That was that. That was some good energy there for the taking L segment here today. Um, and I, I certainly don't have as much necessarily. And actually, um, the person that I'm giving an L will be presidential candidate Joe Biden. And Ooh. it wasn't an original take, actually. Like I, I got to give credit to Matt McNally, who works for Commissioner Hardesty's office here in the city of Portland. I've done a lot of work with Matt McNally, um, you know, especially when it comes to Portland street response and, and other things as well. But um, really good guy. And as I mentioned, a staffer over with Commissioner Hardesty's office. But 
Matt McNally, he tweeted out, and I'm going to read the tweet here. It's pretty wild that Joe Biden has been completely silent about federal goons being deployed to Portland and now cities throughout the country. Speaking out against fascism should be the lowest bar of expectation for anyone. Seriously, Mm. say something, Joe. Mm. And I hadn't really thought about the fact that Biden hadn't said anything. Honestly, haven't really looked to Biden um, in this moment in time. And I think a lot of that has to do with me obviously being here in the city of Portland, um, me more so looking to the local journalists and the local politicians and kind of what they have to say and kind of what their responses are going to be. Obviously, in the last week and a half or so, last couple of weeks with these federal troops coming in here to the city of Portland, and Donald Trump being outspoken and sending them this way. I'm obviously uh, I'm against that, but it's ha- it has become headline news. I mean, we're all over CNN now. Um, I, we're on The View. We're on a lot of these big-time mm-hmm. platforms um, that are out there, but to not hear Joe Biden come out and say anything in regards to a city that that is primarily Democrat, um, a city that obviously is standing up against the same exact guy who is his opponent here in the presidential running when it comes to the election here in November, just a few months away from now. Um, I, I got to give Joe Biden a nail for not acknowledging what's going on here in the city and not standing with Portland in a sense and, and speaking out on behalf of the city of Portland and standing up against Donald Trump and the decisions that he's made in regards to what's going to happen and what is happening here in the city of Portland. So Joe Biden has to take an L for me. I hope he, I really, really hope that he speaks up really, really soon because this is something that we can see take place nationally in a rapid manner and in a rapid pace. And for him to not be on the ball right now in the earlier stages of what's going on in our country right now that's being led right here in the city of Portland, I would hate for him to catch on later when there's damage from federal troops in city after city after city in these here United States of America that he plans to preside over in just a few short months. So I got to give Joe Biden a nail there. We need you to speak up on behalf of the city of Portland, Joe. That's, That's my take a nail. I like it. You know, you, I don't have to pile on Joe here. I mean, maybe it is to pile on Joe. I mean, <laughs> it is what it is. When he was asked about defunding the police, he said, oh, no, no, no. I don't think we're going to do that. In fact, he wants to increase the amount of money by some $300 million that police get around the country. So being closed-minded to the idea of defunding the police seems worthy of another L, maybe at a future segment. But yeah, absolutely. That's a good one, Devon. I like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And like I said, it wasn't an original take, but it just also wasn't that I wasn't something that I hadn't really thought about. So shout outs to Matt McNally for tweeting that out because it's certainly something um, that that needs to be known and needs to be said. And it's something and it's pressure that needs to be applied to Joe Biden for not acknowledging the big time stuff, you know, not in a not in a great way, but that is happening here in the city of Portland that could be very contagious and, and spread at a rapid pace um, throughout this country and maybe even throughout this world. We never know, but definitely throughout this country when we speak in terms of federal troops coming and in invading cities. So um, that's my take and L's. But Jules, can you let them know where to follow you? I saw you earlier on Twitter. You, you got a lot of new followers coming your way because you've been out there at these nightly protests. You've been doing a great job covering these protests. You've written a book recently. You're getting published left and right. It's just a lot going on in the world of Jules Boykoff right now. <laughs> Dr. Jules Boykoff, I should say, um, as I correct myself there. So let the folks know where to follow you because I'm already seeing you acknowledge the new followers before we even got to this very point here on this podcast. <laughs> I think the best place to go is probably on Twitter. I'm Jules Boykoff, so J-U-L-E-S-B-O-Y-K-O-F-F. And I catalog most of my writings at my website. I have a personal website, which is just julesboykoff.org. Thank you very much. Well, Jules, once again, I'm so glad that you were able to make it here and have a conversation with me. Very grateful about it. Um, Keep up the great work that you're doing. You're informing us in ways that we need to be informed, being out there on the front lines when it comes to the Olympic Games. As I mentioned, you're one of the leading voices and scribes when it comes to the politics of that. And Although, you know, we did obviously get to have a great conversation in regards to Olymp- in regards to the Olympics. Um, I had already expected that 
coming into this into this conversation, as I mentioned earlier, but to be able to talk about what's happening here in the city of Portland right now, um, we, we need work like yours to continue to take place. Um, obviously, I'm doing my own work on my own different fronts here as well, but um, just all the local journalists here in the city of Portland, I, I'm really... I'm really thrilled and I'm really kind of in awe at some of the great work that we've been able to see out here. And I think that that certainly needs to be recognized um, because there has been some journalism that has been absolutely outstanding and people really need to take notice um, because obviously you and I work in that field and we support great journalism, but I think the rest of the country could really appreciate some of what's being published and being written and being spoke about by journalists here in the city of Portland. Yes, sir. And just thanks for having me on the show. I always love talking to you and working with you, Devon. You're doing amazing work right now. And we'll just just keep this thing going. Absolutely. Let's do it, Jules. Well, thank you very much. And uh, with that being said, we are going to leave y'all the only way that we know how, and that is to stay woke and go win.